As they make their way, if you'd please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. There's a busy service. We've got a lot of things going on. Recognition of those members of our church family who have gone on to be with the Lord. Ordination and installation of our deacons. But all of this is about having a Christian worldview. All of this, whether remembering those who have departed or we're uh, recognizing those called to serve, it's all about who we are and who God is. It's about our worldview. Now, what is a worldview? Well, the worldview is the way in which we see the world and the people around us. It's, it's the, 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 how we think about reality, about how and why things work the way they do. What is right and wrong? What is good and evil? What is, what is true and false? And everyone has a worldview. And we can share similar worldviews. Now, Paul talks about worldviews in our theme passage that we've been looking at in this sermon series about breaking free from the mold of the world and mastering the art of the ordinary. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is telling us that as followers of Jesus, we have to have a different worldview than the lost world around us. We're no longer to conform to the lost world's pattern of thinking. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To see the world as its creator sees it. To understand the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God. We're called to be different in how we view the world. So that we can stand strong in the midst of a a rapidly shifting and changing culture. Our culture, there is no foundation for our culture. It changes on a whim from day to day. We are just swamped with so many fads and so many different ways of thinking. And you never know from day to day what you can say and what you can't say without being branded by the culture around us. And so we need to courageously take our stand and share and show our convictions through what we say and how we live. But what is our source What is the source of our worldview? What is it that that renews our minds and so transforms the way we think and speak and live? Two things. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. That is what shapes and forms the Christian worldview, the Gospel. The Gospel must be the lens through which we interpret the world around us. It must be the foundation for how we live and the decisions we make. You know, as Christians, we don't have to go looking for a confrontation with the culture around us. If we simply live out the gospel, we will find ourselves in confrontation with the world around us. And we'll also find ourselves in confrontation with the war of sin still raging within us. Maybe you this morning have ever felt convicted by God's word, but found yourself becoming defensive. Maybe you, the preacher said something or you're reading the Bible and it said something and you kind of got a little defensive. Maybe you found yourself trying to explain away that passage of Scripture. Well, that's not what Jesus really meant when He said that. Or maybe you find yourself kind of justifying your sin, trying to look for a loophole. Well, if that happens to us as believers, is it any wonder that the lost world does the same? 
that they defensively label our biblical views as insulting or bigoted or backward? See, as Christians, I think we can tend to overlook just how offensive the gospel is to a lot of people. For, for, for the modern mind, the idea that there's a God who sustains, owns, and defines us, who rules and will one day judge us, that's offensive to them. That's, that's the sinful nature's reaction to God, isn't it? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's why Paul calls the gospel a stumbling block, an offense, foolishness to those who are lost. But Paul also says in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Listen to what he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Are you ashamed of the gospel this morning? Paul wasn't ashamed. You know why Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's the truth of the gospel. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what is in your past, what you've done. The gospel is the power of God for your salvation if you believe. To help us to understand, though, this morning how living a life transformed by the gospel, how this creates a confrontation with our culture, I want to briefly outline five gospel truths that the world finds offensive. The first is the character of God. The world finds the character of God offensive. If we continue on in verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has made Himself plainly known to mankind through creation itself. But God is also beyond that given a special revelation of Himself through His interaction throughout history with the people of Israel and through the person of Jesus Christ. And we find God's interaction with humanity, His His becoming a part of the affairs of mankind, we see that and know that because it is written in God's inspired Word, the Bible. God has revealed Himself to us, generally through creation, specifically through Scripture. But you know, we live in a culture that no longer values the Bible. We live in a culture, in fact, where people regularly shun, mock, and undercut people of faith. Biblical literacy in our country is at an all-time low. And as a result, the character of the God of the Bible is unknown to so many people today. It reminds me of when Paul went to Athens and addressed pagan citizens of Rome who had no knowledge of the Old Testament, of, of the Hebrew Scriptures. They had no concept of the God of the Bible. And Paul had to preach to those pagan Roman citizens and that's the same kind of culture we face today. And so I looked at what Paul said, how he described God to these people. He emphasized God as creator. 
and sovereign Lord of the universe, that God is all-sufficient. He's uncontainable. He's the giver of life and is actively involved in human affairs. And Paul explains why that is. It's so that God could reveal Himself to people so that we could know Him and reach for Him and find Him. You see, God is a God who seeks the lost. he's, He's near to each and every one of us. God isn't some distant, faraway God unconcerned with us. God is here and He knows us and He cares about us and He loves us. But God is also a holy and just God who will judge each person with justice. Because we're lost. Why are we lost? Why is God going to judge each and every human being with justice? Because of the second gospel truth. The sinfulness of man. We're created by God, yes. We're loved by God, yes. But we're also separated by God because of the corruption of sin in our lives. If we continue on in Romans 1, verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And Paul goes on in Romans 3.23 to tell us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, the beginning of sin, the seed from which sin sprouts, is the questioning of God's character. Is God really good? Is God really just? Are God's ways really best? Does He really know what's right for me? Does God really want what's best for me? This is what the serpent whispered into Eve's ear all the way back in Genesis 3. Did God really say you couldn't eat the fruit of this tree? See, the temptation in the garden was for man and woman to become their own determiners of what is right and wrong. They rebelled against God's authority. And to this day, people still choose to be the arbiters of their own morality, don't they? You do you. You live your truth. You do what feels right to you. Follow your heart. Don't let anyone change you. The moral relativism of the 21st century is as old as human history, isn't it? It goes all the way back to the beginning of sin. When we decide that we know what's best rather than God, we exchange the objective truth that God has given us in His Word for subjective notions we create in our own minds. Whatever seems right to me, whatever feels right to me, is right for me. That's what we want to tell ourselves. That is sin. That is me living for my own personal satisfaction. And the tragic irony is that this constant quest to satisfy ourselves actually enslaves us to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul explains to us very simply the consequences of being a slave to sin in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what God promised Adam and Eve back in the garden. 
that if they chose to rebel against their Creator, the price would be death. And not just physical death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God. But Paul goes on in this verse to give us the good news when he says, but... But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. The character of God, the sinfulness of man. But here we see in this second half of this verse, the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus alone is able to remove our sin and reconcile us to God. Once again, Paul begins with the bad news in Romans 3 and he gives us the good news. So if you go back to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he says that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood and He did this to demonstrate His justice. Why is the Gospel offensive? To the sinful heart, because it announces who God is. God is holy, God is just, and God is sovereign. And it announces who we are. We are sinful, we are lost, and we are subject to judgment. And then it tells us that Jesus is the only person who can fix the problem. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to God. You see, on the cross, God fully expressed His holy judgment upon sin, but at the same time revealed to us His unrelenting love for sinners because God in Christ fully endured His own holy judgment against sin. And God through Christ made salvation possible for all who believe. He willingly paid our death penalty for sin. And when people struggle over the idea that there's only one way to God, and a lot of people in our culture think, well, that's just harsh, that's just judgmental, you can't say that, you can't say there's only one way to God. We have to remember that if there are 1,000 ways to God, they'd be upset there wasn't 1,001 ways to God. Because people don't want many ways to lead to God. They only want one way to lead to God. They just want it to be their way. And again, that's the very essence of sin, that we reject God's ways in favor of our ways. The fourth idea is the necessity of faith. You see, we're reconciled to Jesus Christ not through what we do, not through what we accomplish. We freely receive His gift of grace by faith. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Since we are lost in our sins and alienated from God, since Jesus alone is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins, only the sinless Son of God could pay the price for our sins. If that's all true, then the only way that we can obtain this salvation is by faith in His grace. And that's the difference between a a religion and a saving relationship. Religion is about what I can do to try to appease God. But Christianity is about having a relationship with that holy God, not based on our credentials, but based on Christ's credentials. It isn't about me being good enough to get into heaven. It's about me throwing myself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus because only Christ Jesus is good enough. Paul said in Romans, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. He says it is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one has any room to boast. The necessity of faith. And finally, the urgency of eternity. See, our eternal destiny 
depends on that faith response to the all-sufficient Christ. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than He talked about heaven or prayer? Hell was on Jesus' mind because Jesus came to save us from hell. Jesus endured hell on that cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly warns us that our time is short, that the kingdom of heaven is near, that night is coming soon when no one will work, that He's going to return to judge the living and the dead, and that His coming will be without warning. It will be like a thief in the night. Jesus gives us an urgency for eternity, but we as the American church have lost that sense of urgency. We have to break through the cultural mold that tells us that right now is all that matters. That seeking pleasure today is the end goal. And I think this is why the lost world can't understand the idea that we can love the sinner and hate the sin. And it's because we have this sense of urgency for eternity. We see that there are eternal consequences to sinful lifestyles. And so our greatest concern isn't how someone feels right now or how they're accepted by society. Our greatest concern is that someone is accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ so they can feel His love and live with Him for eternity. That's our concern. That's our heart. But I think the urgency for eternity may be one of the most the things that most defines us and separates us from the culture around us because the culture around us is so consumed with living for this moment. John 3.16 really summarizes all of this up when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. That's the Gospel. All five of those truths right there in that verse. And this verse strikes fear in the heart of Satan. And this verse sets us apart from the lost world around us. Now, real quickly, there are four ways we can respond to this clash between the gospel and the culture. Four ways we can respond. And to tell you up front, the first three, we shouldn't respond. Right? Number four is what we should do. So the first one is we can conform. You know, we begin compromising what we believe and how we act. And a lot of churches are doing this. They compromise the gospel so that they can appeal and appease the lost world. And they even believe that what they're doing is loving and strategic. That they're hoping to attract people to Jesus through a watered-down, sugar-coated, less offensive form of Christianity. But you know what? Our job isn't to make following Jesus any easier, is it? In fact, Paul has already told us not to do that. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Jesus told us to be salt and light. That is, we're to be different than the world around us. Jesus sent us into this world. So this isn't an option for a Bible-believing Christian to conform. Nor is the second one, and that is to check out. When Christians check out, it's sort of like you find yourself on a sinking ship and you're like, where's the the nearest lifeboat? I've got to get out of here. And some Christians see the church as a lifeboat to just escape and get away from the world. But Jesus, again, specifically prayed to the Father. 
He said, Father, don't take them out of this world. Send them into this world and protect them as you send them into this world. Jesus said, we're not to hide our light under a basket. We're to put our light on a lampstand and shine it into the darkness around us. We are to charge into the darkness, carrying the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Checking out and holding up among our own is not an option. Neither is combat. See, some Christians take on a militant tone. And they see themselves as God's soldiers at war with the culture around them. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to stand firm at a culture that is clearly at war with the gospel and with God. And really, every lost human being is an enemy of God. They're at war with God, whether they realize it or not. But this combative view misses the heart of Jesus. It misses the heart of the gospel because the lost world isn't an enemy to be defeated. They are lost people to be loved and saved. Our goal isn't to win an argument and is not to prove ourselves to be right. Our goal is to show Jesus to be true and worthy and invite others into a relationship with Him. So how should we respond to the gospel? We should, or to the culture with the gospel, we should counter it. Counter the culture. Go against the flow. See, Christ calls us to engage the culture with the gospel. And we have to do that with three more C's and we'll be done. Compassion, conviction, and courage. Compassion. See, we care deeply about the lost world around us. We care about suffering and injustice. We're not to turn a blind eye. But like Jesus, we should reach out in mercy and love to everyone. Amen? Amen. To everyone. We counter the culture with compassion, but we also counter it with conviction. Conviction that the world should not be this way. We should feel a righteous indignation towards sin and its destructive effects on people and families and communities and nations. We should stand in conviction against sin because God hates sin. And why does God hate sin? Because it destroys His good creation. And finally, compassion and conviction should fuel our courage. Courage to say something. Courage to do something. Courage to meet people's needs in the name of Jesus and to share the gospel with them. How do you respond to the culture around you? Men, women, children, teenagers, Sunday school teachers, deacons. How are we responding to the culture around us? This morning, Jesus stands ready to meet your needs. He stands ready to offer you a new beginning. Have you realized your lostness in sin? That you owe a debt to a holy God that you can never repay on your own? Have you ever confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for your salvation? This morning, right now, you can come and experience all five of these gospel truths in your life today. If you would come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning, God is calling you to acknowledge His Lordship already in your life through the act of believer's baptism. Maybe you've never been baptized, and you've been a Christian for a while now, but you want to come and say, I want to make this public, and I want to follow and obey God through baptism. Maybe God is calling you to move your church membership to First Baptist Church, because this is where you've been worshiping and serving, and this is, you know, where God wants you to plant your family and serve Him. Maybe God is calling you to surrender to His calling in your life, in a specific way. Whatever He's speaking to you, 
Would you stand and pray with me and then come as God's Spirit leads. Father, we love you and thank you for your gospel, for its truth and its power. May none of us in this room ever be ashamed of your gospel. May we live it out with conviction, with compassion, and with courage for your glory and for the good of the lost people around us so desperately in need of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.